uh, just to kind of get us back into where we're at in our text, because last week we did Thanksgiving. Um, At the end of chapter 9 of Matthew, uh, after a long day of traveling through towns and villages in Israel, announcing the good news and healing every kind of disease and, and illness, Jesus had compassion on the crowds of confused and helpless people. And there at the end of chapter 9, he admonishes his followers. He says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. And then in the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus appoints the 12 apostles. And he gives them authority to preach and to heal as Jesus had been doing. So the the remainder of chapter 10 is Jesus giving instructions to the apostles, to the 12 apostles. Now some of these instructions, I spent some time with two weeks ago explaining this, some of these instructions are specific to the then and there, what is happening in the original story. And but there's some principles that can be applied to our here and now. And so that's our job this morning and with this text is to figure out which principles apply to us here and now. I don't know if I will think to mention it later on, but part of chapter 10, part of the difficulty of chapter 10 is not only is Jesus writing or giving instructions to these 12 apostles who he's about to send out, so he's giving them specific instructions to this specific circumstances, but he's also speaking to us, the readers, and so we got to figure out what applies to the here and now. But chapter 10 begins this difficult part of figuring out what is eschatological. So Jesus is saying these things, some have to do with the then and there, some have to do with the here and now, and some have to do with future things. And so chapter 10 is difficult, and I always read ahead and start kind of planning and thinking about how I'm going to preach a passage, and I've been complaining to Thomas and to Diane for the last two weeks about how this has some, this text is suspicious specifically begins some very difficult things to uh, to teach and so then I start looking at commentaries to see because if I can't figure it out then I try to find somebody who's smarter than me which isn't very hard uh, to tell me how they taught it and what I discovered is a whole bunch of commentaries say this is one of the most difficult passages of all of scripture so if I if if I speak this morning and you have no idea what I'm talking about whenever we're done we're all in the same boat, okay? All right, so we're gonna extract the, extract the principles that fit to us uh, this morning. Hostility, persecution, and hate. Oh, that's a good sermon title. Hostility, persecution, and hate. Now, because we have the privilege of living on this side of the history, of history, of the history of the cross, we know that Jesus himself faced some hostility some persecution, and some hate. Are you with me there? You you do know that he was persecuted, died on a cross. They murdered him. Yet we still have this expectation that Christianity as a faith or as a religion somehow keeps us away from bad or painful circumstances. We talk about this regularly, but then still people come into Christianity and then bad things happen and they say things like, well, I thought if I became a Christian that uh, my tires wouldn't wear out on my vehicle. We expect that if we serve God, life will have fewer obstacles. And that's just not biblical. Biblical. Oh man, this is going to be a tough morning. Somebody told me I'd already had too many cups of coffee. Maybe that's it. I don't know. 
I'm not sure what the 12 apostles expected when they were chosen and empowered by Jesus, but I don't think that they thought it was going to be easy and obstacle-free after that. Number one, if you're looking at your notes, number one, shrewd and harmless. There's our instruction to us to be shrewd and harmless. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, it says, look, I, who is speaking here? Yeah, because in your book, in your Bible, it's in red. So it's Jesus. We know. Look, Jesus, I am sending you, the 12, out as sheep among wolves. Got that picture in your head? Jesus says to his 12 apostles, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Now, you've probably heard it said before uh, because it's translated a little bit different. Uh, be wise as serpents or be wise as a snake and harmless as a dove. We, we quote that often. Um, Jesus is sending the 12 out. He's telling them, you, I'm paraphrasing, you will have vicious enemies. There will be hostile people who want to silence you. Got that? There will be hostile people. There will be people who want to silence the message of the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone is going to be receptive of the good news of Jesus Christ. Some will be hostile. Uh, it's hard for us to get our brain around that because we say it's a message of grace and it's wonderful and it's forgiveness and why wouldn't everybody want that? But the fact of the matter is not everybody does want the message of Jesus Christ. I think that it is intentional that Jesus uses the analogy of sheep and wolves. The message of grace and forgiveness is going to appear meek and mild. We think of it as peaceful and somewhat defenseless compared to the world's philosophy of power and control. So you have the sheep and the wolves. Does that make sense? This is still kind of true for us today, or very true for us today. Um, how do we share the message of Jesus with people who prefer to be hostile toward us? Jesus answers that. He says, so be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. Be shrewd as snakes, be wise as a serpent, and be as harmless as a dove. In John chapter 17, verse 16, Jesus is praying for the disciples, for his disciples. And he says, he's talking to God the Father, he says, they, his followers, do not belong to this world any more than I do. It's a pretty significant statement. Jesus' followers do not belong to this world any more than Jesus belongs to this world. Jesus, being the Son of God, he belongs in heaven. Us being redeemed and being followers of Christ, we belong with our heavenly Father. Does that make sense? So Jesus, as he's praying, he says, they, the followers, his followers, do not belong to this world any more than I do. As believers, as followers of Christ, we live in this world we live in this world with values of the kingdom of heaven. Do you see there's a problem there? We live in this odd overlap of kingdoms. Our perspective of reality, 
Our perspective of reality comes from believing what the Bible says about heaven and about earth, and we believe it to be true. However, we live in a world of people who sees the world very differently than we do. They perceive truth and reality very differently than we do. Therefore, Jesus cautions his apostles. He cautions us today, be shrewd, be wise, and be harmless. Does that make sense? Arm yourselves with knowledge, both academic knowledge as well as street smarts. I think that's important qualifier there. And then, once you have the understanding of both worlds and how doctrine and theology, once you've taken systematic theology, hallelujah, yeah, and you understand doctrine and you understand how people think and work, then be wise and be harmless. Be harmless as a dove. You okay? Don't go looking for trouble. Don't go creating arguments. We're instructed several times throughout the New Testament to do all we can to live at peace. I know some church people, I'm not going to give them the benefit of being believers. They just attend church so that they can gain some knowledge so that they can be antagonistic on Facebook. If you win an argument on the internet, you're still a loser. That's a good saying. I saw that on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. We just like to learn a little. No, you don't come and learn doctrine and theology at systematic theology class so that you can just go out and argue with people. I, I, I was that way once upon a time, but I outgrew that, thankfully. <laughs> okay, I'm still a little bit that way. So here's our application. When faced with hostility, be shrewd and be harmless. When faced with hostility, because at some point in our lives, even in America, even in Farmington, someone's going to be hostile toward our faith in Jesus Christ. Be shrewd and be harmless. Sometimes we do need to speak to a problem. Sometimes we need to remain quiet. Sometimes we can affect change with our words. Sometimes we need to live our lives quietly and let our good deeds be testimony enough of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it takes some wisdom to know when to speak and when to... I was going to say shut up, but my wife is telling me in my head, stop saying that on Sunday morning. And to be quiet. Be shrewd and be harmless. Let, any, let anyone who lacks wisdom ask the Lord and he will give it to you is what James chapter one says. By the way, if you think that you are wise, you're the one that James is talking about. So you lack wisdom, you need to ask for it. Number two, opportunity. Everyone say opportunity. Because we're going to read this text and it's not going to sound like opportunity, but it is opportunity. And I think that Jesus is, that's his intent, is to speak to the opportunity of this situation. So look at chapter 10, verse 17. He says, but be aware for you, the 12, the 12 apostles, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. Are you picturing this? Oh, this is wonderful. 
Come follow me. Come promote the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will be handed over to the courts and you will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time, for it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Man, there's so many things going on in that text right there, but the general idea of persecution being an opportunity is so counterintuitive for us Americans. You okay? I can't believe the Bible says that. <laughs> if someone offers to take you to court, our first and foremost thought is we have to prove that we are innocent. We have to prove that I am right. Right? That's how we think. If you're going to take me to court, I'm going to go, I'm going to fight tooth and nail to prove that I am right and you were wrong and you're going to pay for accusing me. Proving you are innocent or right does not even seem to be on Jesus' radar. What? Using your trial as an opportunity to tell others about Jesus is what Jesus was thinking about. In fact, the encouragement Jesus gives to his 12 apostles here is not, if you, you will go to court, but I'll, don't worry about it because I'm gonna make sure that you're proven innocent. I'll make sure that you get off without any consequences. I'll make sure that the, the charges are dropped. Everything will be wiped away. I mean, that's how we tend to think, but that's not the instructions that Jesus gave. No, Jesus' assurance is that you will be taken to court and you don't have to worry about what to say because the Spirit of God will speak through you to tell the judge and the jury all about Jesus being the Messiah. Well, what about me? What about you? This is all about the Messiah. Really messed your thinking up, didn't it? Well, who's going to defend us? Doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Jesus' assurance is that the Spirit of God will speak through you to tell unbelievers about Jesus being the Messiah. And then we see this played out, especially in the book of Acts. Uh, you think about Saul, I mean Paul. Uh, Paul seldom defends himself when called before the authorities. He gets arrested and he has to give an account of himself. And instead of, of trying to defend himself and his own actions, what does he do? He goes and he declares the risen Lord. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He goes and he tells that there is only one by which man can be saved, and his name is Jesus. Paul and Silas, they went to jail. They got arrested for preaching. Um, they did not go and declare their innocence. In fact, what did they do? They decided to sing some praise tunes until the jail fell down and and then they told the jailer and his family about Jesus. Well, what about my innocence? It's not even on the radar, sweetheart. You okay? 
Paul and Silas didn't complain about the injustice. They didn't demand their rights. They were shrewd and harmless. They suffered persecution as an opportunity to tell others about Jesus because the gospel message was more important to them than their own physical comfort. You okay? Are we still friends? But we have a right. Because we are American, we have the constitutional right to demand our religious freedom. However, because we are followers of Christ, which is a much bigger issue, a much bigger citizenship, we do not have the liberty to put our preferences before our testimony of Christ Jesus. I'm pausing so you can absorb, not so that you can find something in your purse to throw at me. (laughs) There is nothing in all of scripture that guarantees that you and I are exempt from being persecuted by the unbelieving world around us. In fact, he tells us over and over, you're gonna be persecuted, you're gonna suffer trials. So be shrewd and be harmless. And when the opportunity to share about Jesus arises, Trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. And by the way, I don't think that it will be words to defend yourself. I'm pretty sure it's going to be words that will promote Jesus as Lord. Love the amens this morning. Number three. They're still like, wait, we're going to be persecuted? Man, I don't make this stuff up. I just read it. Number three, endure to the end. Endure to the end. Verse 21, a brother will betray his brother to death. Man, picture this. This is where we start to see, really see the eschatological application of this. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 23, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man will return before you have reached all the towns of Israel. Now you see how this got complicated, right? I'm assuming you do. Jesus' instructions to, the, to these 12 apostles as he sends them out is that they will be hated. Come follow Jesus. Share the message of Jesus. When you do, your friends, your family, your neighbors, even the nations will hate you. It'll be great. Biblical Christianity is counterintuitive to humanistic philosophy. Stick with me for a second. Biblical Christianity seeks to exalt God 
and to promote God as the supreme being over all. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is worthy of our submission and our obedience. Did you catch everything that I said there? I've said it very intentionally. Jesus is Lord. You see, this is my joke always to you guys. You're not God. You're not Lord. So because we recognize Jesus as Lord, we worship him as God, and he is worthy of our submission and our obedience. In Christianity, God is the center of all things. Why do we live? To give glory to God. Why are we shrewd? To give glory to God. Humanism, which kind of encompasses a whole lot of worldviews, all worldviews, humanism seeks to exalt mankind, meet mankind's needs and desires. That, that, humanism answers the question, what about me? <laughs> See, oops. Christianity we say, what about you? And we say, well, what about you? This is all about God. We like humanism because it answers, what about me? And humanism offers an answer for what about you? Humanism is like, oh, you're wonderful. You're great. We're here to meet your need. We're here to fulfill all of your desires. What is it you want? We'll all bow and make sure that you get whatever it is. Humanism tries to make sense of this world by looking inward. Humanity is independent and self-sufficient. We can figure this out on our own. We sure don't need some external divine being, supernatural being, messing with our independence. From the humanistic perspective, humans are at the center of all things. More specifically, I am at the center of all things. So you can see how the two perspectives run counter to one another. Christianity says there is a God who is supreme. Humanism says there is no God and we are supreme. Christianity says sin and, re and rejection of God is the problem. Humanism says no, people who think differently than me are the problem. <laughs> Christianity says Jesus is the answer. Humanism says no, we are the answer. You can see how hate can wedge itself between these two extremely opposite worldviews. We have seen it in our families. We see it in our world today, our nation. We can see how, how the culture is presently becoming more hostile toward biblical Christianity. I'm qualifying Christianity because there's some Christianity, Christianity out there that the world is like, yeah, this Christianity is good. They accept anything. So it's biblical Christianity. The world is hostile to biblical Christianity. There's a significant qualification there. So Jesus says, be shrewd and be harmless. Present the gospel. And if you have to, Use words. That's good, isn't it? So that quote, that quote is attributed to several different people. I didn't originally come up with it, but we don't know really who did actually say it first. Present the gospel, and if you have to, use 
words. So here is our hope. Here is our hope. He says, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. That's our hope. We keep our faith in Jesus no matter who hates us and no matter the circumstances around us. Christians have this propensity to say, oh, whatever's falling apart in my world. My kids are not behaving exactly right. Taxes are coming up, so I'm gonna have to pay a lot of taxes. I'm not sure that Jesus cares about me anymore. Right? The car didn't start this morning. I don't know if Jesus loves me anymore. What? No, 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 no. Regardless of the circumstances around us, we keep our faith in Jesus. Regardless of who hates us, we keep our faith in Jesus. Verse 23, he says, when you are persecuted in one town, don't lose your faith. Flee to the next town. Just go to the next town. This is similar to what Jesus taught in verse 14. Uh, several weeks ago, we covered it. That if, uh, if it's in a hometown, in a home or in a situation, town in a home or in a town if they refuse to welcome you then you shake the dust from your feet and you leave the whole point is you and I we cannot we do not force people to believe what we believe we cannot force people to believe what we believe we share our faith in Jesus we live in obedience to Christ. We do our best to live in peace, to be wise, and to be harmless. And if the gospel message is rejected, then Jesus says, move on. Just move on. You and I do not have the power to change people. We get frustrated when people don't agree with us, right? I mean, we have the truth, and I want people that I love to have the truth. So when they don't receive it, I want to grab them by the neck and strangle them until they love Jesus. And then we're like, well, I don't know why my family doesn't love Jesus like I do. <laughs> really? <laughs> Shrewd as a serpent, harmless as a dove. You have to love Jesus or you'll go to hell. Wham, wham, wham. Pass me the stupid turkey. We do not have the power to change people. Being rude or pushy does not win people to Christ. We move on. We see this throughout scripture, that salvation, so it's very easy whenever it's us. It's like, okay, God had to work in my heart to get me to see Jesus. But whenever it comes to the people that I want to serve God, then I, if I get the words right, if I tell them often enough, if I tell them loud enough, if I tell them aggressively enough, then they'll come to Jesus. It was a work of God in your life, but it's a work of me and those that I love. And that's wrong. We be shrewd. We be... Uh, we be wise, we be peaceful, we be kind, we be kind. We give the gospel and if we have to, we use words. And if the gospel is rejected, we move on. We don't have the power to change. Finally, he says, uh, here's, here's a difficult sentence. He says, I tell you the truth, the son of man which is kind of an odd reference to Jesus, but he's talking about himself. I tell you, the son of man will return 
before you have reached all the towns of Israel. Remember that then and there is Jesus is sending the 12 out and then he says the son of man will return before you have reached all the towns in Israel. There's the setting. So what is Jesus talking about here? And second, I think of is why is Matthew including this? Because sometimes I think weird things are said. We don't need to repeat those things. But Matthew saw the need to put these things in his gospel. So I tell you the truth, Jesus says, the son of man will return before you, the 12, have reached all the towns of Israel. Why did Matthew include this? What does Jesus mean by it? Uh, I found five options for what is meant here. Um, By the Son of Man will return before you reach all the towns of Israel. There's five options. Some of them are a little bit, have a little more evidence and are a little more logical. Some of them are weak. Uh, but I figure for the sake of getting your brain all involved, I'll give you the five options and then you can do with it whatever you wish. Um, not really completely whatever you wish. You need to do a little Bible study and figure out what you think. Uh, but I also believe that good hermeneutics, you can look that word up, good hermeneutics is when the Bible is ambiguous, I think we need to be ambiguous. So somebody's going to say, well, Brent, you got to take a, you gave us five options. Which one is the truth? I, I don't know. I mean, the reason this is difficult is because if you had a thousand theologians, you'd have a thousand different perspectives on this. Actually, we have thousands of theologians and we have five perspectives on it. So here we go. Number one, uh, you can write these down if you want, if you're curious. Uh, Number one, uh, whenever he says the Son of Man will come back before you uh, reach, all, reach all the towns of Israel. Number one, what does he mean? Jesus is coming to the disciples. Jesus is coming to his disciples, the 12, upon his return, upon their return from this particular mission. So John, uh, Matthew chapter 10, he's sending the 12 out and he's saying, I will be back Coming, Jesus is going to come to his disciples before they get all of the mission carried out. Very specific to the original occasion. Does that make sense? Jesus says, I'm going to come, maybe and come regroup everybody before you reach all the towns. Okay? One option. By the way, I think that there can be more than one option that is true here because I told you at the beginning, there's a then and there, there's a here and now, and then there's an eschatological part to this so maybe multiple things one is jesus is going to come regather his 12 apostles and and before the mission is completed number two is jesus's resurrection talking about jesus will will rise talking about that that's the son of man's coming his return i don't know that's iffy to me it's vague three the coming of the holy spirit at, at pentecost so you have Jesus is here he's going to die he's going to go away the holy spirit's going to come back in acts chapter two There again, I think that that's reaching. Number four, the destruction of Israel in AD uh, 70. I don't really understand that argument at all. So number five, I probably should have taken that out, but uh, somebody smarter than me or that I think smarter than me made that argument, so whatever. I'll throw it in there. Number five is the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age. An eschatological application. Now, we don't have to work with, we don't have a lot to work with here in this text to come up with a confident interpretation. 
And this is where I really stand firm on it bugs me when Bible teachers will take an ambiguous text and make it black and white. We don't know exactly what he's saying. Now, I think that as we go through the book of Matthew, we're going to see more of this text that has a then and there, a here and now, and an eschatological application. So it gets even more complicated. Do we need to work this out definitively? I don't think so. But I do think that we can look at the book of Matthew and see why he's including this. So here, here's, here's what I think. I'm qualifying this as this is what I think. And so you can dismiss it, you know, already. Some of you already turned your hearing aid off. I do think that Jesus' words are pointing toward a final judgment. I mean... I think that Matthew includes this statement because he wanted the Jews who are hearing this to feel a sense of urgency about the gospel message. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, this gospel, Jesus is telling his 12 apostles, basically, this gospel will not reach every Jewish village. Not all the Jews will hear the message of salvation before it's too late. When Jesus sends the 12 out, the Jews, I, I preached this back at Gen, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, the Jews were first priority, but they will not all be reached. Now, I would think that if you are a Jew, and you are hearing Matthew's gospel, or if you're reading Matthew's gospel for the first time, that you would feel some sense of urgency with this. The Jewish Messiah has come. That's the message. The Jewish Messiah has come. Elohim, Jehovah of the Old Testament, has sent his, the Messiah is here through the Jews. And then Matthew says, quoting Jesus, not all the Jews are gonna hear the message of the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. There's gonna be Jews that miss out on the message of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if I was a Jew and I heard this, I would say, hey, good message. We need to go tell all of our family and we need to go tell all of our friends and we need to make sure that we tell as many Jews as we possibly can about the message of the Messiah. Does that make sense? That's my two cents. And make sure you're, if you like that, you leave two cents in the offering. Here we go. I'm, I'm closing. We would love for the world to just open up its arms and its hearts and receive Jesus. We would all love that. But that is not the reality that Jesus teaches us. That's not the reality the Bible tells us about. In fact, the Bible instructs us that we are to bless those who persecute us. We present the gospel and we do not defend ourselves. We present the gospel and don't worry about what happens to us. And no matter who rejects us or rejects the message of Jesus Christ, we keep our trust in Jesus and we endure to the end because we read the end of the story and we know that at the end, Jesus wins and I wanna be on his team. Our hope is in Jesus because God has given us 
the Holy Spirit. It's Romans chapter five, verses three, four, and five that I read, read a while ago. Our hope is in Jesus because God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's put the Holy Spirit in us and he has filled us with the Father's love. So if we get persecuted, is it okay? Yes, we are filled with the Father's love. If people hate us because of the message of Jesus, it's okay, we're still filled with the Father's love. If, if life doesn't go the way we think it should go, is it still okay? Do we keep our confidence in Jesus? Yes, we do, because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are filled with the Father's, our Heavenly Father's love. Our confidence is in Jesus, not our ability to share the gospel and not our ability to do right, not our ability to live in a perfect world, but just to fix our eyes on Jesus our Lord and Savior. And then we endure to the end. Stand with me and let's pray.